Hello, Jeff Johnson, host of the Living Undeterred podcast, and today I have a special guest. Really excited to get uh, Dr. Aaron Gupta on the show this morning. Uh, most of my guests seem to be individuals that have lived experiences, but not a lot of clinical experience. Uh, this is an individual that has both. Uh, he's got a book that recently came out that we're going to discuss and also just talk about in general addiction and the opioid epidemic. So Dr. Gupta, thank you for being on the Living Undeterred podcast today. Jeff, it's my honor to be here and talking to you and your audience. Thanks yeah. for having me. Well, I've just known you recently and I've done some background uh, research and I have to confess, I've not read your book yet. Um, as you can imagine, uh, I get sent books quite frequently and uh, I'm trying to navigate my way through them, but your book's at the top of my stack. And to me, it really hits it home really because hits. the reviews I can see about your book seems to be written very passionately and very easy to understand. A lot of times when we talk to physicians or clinicians, um, I, I like to call it word salad. They talk in a language that the average human can't understand, but you've seemed to do a good job in navigating through that. Well, what happened is um, I um, had never read a leisure book in my life from page to page, from start to beginning, because the language is usually very, very difficult to understand. And if you have to open a dictionary for simple words that you don't have not read or understand, you, you get kind of disconnected with the book and you say, eh, not fun. So when I was writing the book, I wanted to make sure it is at an average level of uh, reading and comprehension. There are medical terms that general public may not understand, but I tried to write it for the common public. And people were asking me when I was writing the book and was coming out, who is it for? And I would say, it's for everybody. And they said, there's no book for everybody. I said, if I can't a common man understand and, and read the book, then I can't have the professionals read the book. Then how can the policymakers read the book and make sense? So everybody has to be able to connect it to make a bigger change. I like the name of the book, the title, The Preventable Ec Epidemic, because it really is preventable. Um, for those people that follow my story, uh, our oldest son, Seth, died from a heroin overdose. It was laced with fentanyl. And then my wife died from alcohol abuse last June. Uh, I've always said, and I said when they were alive, that you know this is a very predictable outcome, yet it's also very preventable. Um, and I think that's the title of your book that really got me interested. So when we talk about preventing the opioid epidemic, uh, I guess what comes to mind? What are, what are some of the top of mind topics that you like to talk about? With well, first of all, where did the preventable word come from? The preventable word is a CDC definition saying opioid crisis is preventable. Mm -hmm. The overdose deaths were found to be retroactively unintentional. Right. And people waitlisted for treatment have very high mortality. Mm -hmm. We have 41 million people at risk, 2.4 million in treatment, and 39 million people have no access to care. A um, lot of them do not desire to get into access to care or don't think the fentanyl is killing people in one attempt these days. You don't have to be addicted. Absolutely. Younger, yeah. kids, younger kids are dying. They try the pill once and kids are kids. They're going to go to a party and, and try and they don't know what is in the bowl and what is in the pill. Mm -hmm. And that's the So new... we need to do a better job in educating our youngsters, kids and the grandkids of everybody that, hey, this is a dangerous thing not, not to get into this stuff. I think that's one of the dangerous assumptions is that these people dying are the addicted or they're the the ones that are struggling with mental health. The reality is there are 13 year olds that are buying Percocet on Snapchat and all they want to do is stay up late with their friends. They, they don't want to they don't want to get high. They're not addicted to anything and they take a pill and they're dead. And so the goalposts mid game have been shifting. And I think that's the challenge we have as advocates, me as a, as a dad with no clinical background and you as a dad and someone with clinical background, is how do we pinpoint the issue and, and get this moving in the correct um, direction? 800 Americans are dying right now from overdose, alcohol and suicide. And I have to kind of lump those together because they are they, they, they do intertwine with each other. Um, you know, people that have addiction issues typically have mental health issues as well. Maybe they're undiagnosed mental health issues. 
but they still have issues. So how do we get this? I guess, how do we get this started to go in the right direction? Well, the whole process started in the year 1999 when CDC for the first time recorded that 16,000 young Americans had died of poisoning. The 106th Congress debated that for two years and come up with a bill called Data 2000. And it said any practicing physician can take a course, pass an exam, and apply for an XTA number. And if they qualify, they could treat up to 30 patients per month for the first year, expandable to 100 patients per month, but there are limits, regulations, and oversight from DEA. So these limits, regulations, and oversight creates a problem with the physicians because they don't want DEA in the office. I've been audited by SAMHSA, I've been audited by DEA, I've been audited by insurance companies because these patients have a lot of needs to keep them alive they have to be seen very frequently, and the insurance companies assume that the doctors are doing waste, fraud, or abuse situations. So we have to go through a lot of stress, and the additional 500 regulations that have been passed to curb the pills and the pill mills in the last 20-some years has made access to care very, very difficult. In mm -hmm. fact, we to a point that we are abandoning care and force patients to go to the street, and the street drugs, as you said, are on Snapchat, uh, you can get OxyContin, Xanax, anything without a doctor, but the doctors are so restricted to write prescriptions when patients need it. So the regulations have gone in the very wrong direction, and uh, 1,000 doctors have been shut down in this country in the last 27 years, and the others do not want to face the same consequences. And so it's easy for them to say, I don't have education, I don't have patients that have problems, uh, why should I get into this stressful situation? There's a lot of disincentives, but there is no incentive for the doctors to learn this. Hmm. It just seems so. Like no matter what you keep on talking, it's not going to work. Yeah, I think in your book you quoted a statistic where there was 41 million individuals that have a substance use disorder, but only six percent six percent actually receive treatment. Yeah. So that's that's CDC numbers that didn't come out of my head. This is from American Society of Addiction Medicine. Yeah, I one thing I wanted to do on today's show is for those people that maybe are a little bit new to this um, with addiction and substance use disorders, is maybe we just step back a little bit and define what addiction actually is. And I did go to I'm sure you know this off the top of your head. But I went to the American Society of Addiction Medicine and looked at their definition of addiction. And it says, addiction is a treatable chronic medical disease involving complex interactions among brain circuits, genetics, the environment, and an individual's lived experience or life experiences. And then, you know, I, I was messing around looking for some other definitions and I found another one. Chronic relapsing disorder characterized by compulsive drug seeking and use and I think the last part's always the thing that has me thinking about addiction, despite adverse consequences. Consequences. So, so, so if addiction is defined by the end result, which is an adverse consequence, is it possible to have a positive addiction? Positive addiction? Like working uh, out or eating healthy or telling the truth yeah, or I mean, exercise. All these things cause a uh, rise in the dopamine level. So if you see somebody 130 pounds jogging five miles a day, they're getting that high from that running. Or somebody's drinking two jugs of water uh, in a day or a bag of uh, um, carrots mm -hmm. or a jar of ice cream. They are getting the dopamine rise uh, that they expect and that they're happy. So in this definition... It came out uh, in 2019. I was going to India, and uh, uh, ASM had produced this definition, and uh, I was very happy. The last uh, paragraph in the definition, uh, um, I'm going to find out in my slides and uh, read it to you, but it said, misunderstood terminology kept people from getting um, access to care. And... Um, yeah, uh, I don't think I have it here. So somewhere else. So so I said, okay, if we change the terminology and the and, and because of the terminology, the government kept on passing bad laws and it restricted access to care. So by changing this definition and raising awareness, 
uh, things are going to be better three years ago, but the death rates have gone up. Right. The access to care has not improved. So, uh, yeah, the, yeah so, so the change in definition three years ago did not do anything to improve this problem. And I think so that's the root cause of the problems. I think so, so many times we look at, look at a statistic and we think it's like directly correlated. Like I remember everyone saying, well, we just got to, all we got to do is just cut down the, the number of opioids that are prescribed, you know, oxycodone. Mm -hmm. we, we just got to cut them down. Well, doctors did that. You know, I think mm -hmm. I saw somewhere that in the last decade, they've, they've been cut in half the amount of uh, opioids, but deaths went up a hundred percent you know, over five years. So, you know, where, where, how does, I mean, obviously people are still needing or wanting these opioids. So they're going to the street, like you said, and that's where the deaths yeah. are coming from. So, yes. Yeah. So what has happened is if, if the pill works for four to six hours, they're going to need about six pills a day. Mm -hmm. But if you write six pills a day, the doctor's numbers are very high with the DEA. Right. So what, what the doctors have been forced is you want to stay under the radar. So they're writing two pills a day. The two pills a day of Norco or Vicodin, uh, a Percocet is not enough. You need OxyContin and then you get used to it and then you're going to need more. So to keep under the radar, the doctors are forced to write less. And the new law says you can write for three to five days after an acute episode. And only the specialist should be writing the the long-term pain medications. There are only 2,800 pain specialists. Wow. And the government has shut down even the pain specialists. Now, it just seems to me this would be a, a logical outcome if, if you would have played this out years ago. If you look at anything where you, you restrict the supply of something, um, unless people find a way to just not need it, you know, other alternative ways of, it seems like in the Western culture, we just prescribe pills. Um, mm -hmm. if there's, if that was pretty fairly predictable that this would happen, it's like, then why do we expect the results to be any different? Why do we expect people to stop dying? If, if it's pretty much been shown that people will go to the, the, the illegal way to get these, these, um, pain med meds or, or these, um, opioids. So this is what happened in uh, 2009 and 10, when Purdue's OxyContin and the Opana from another pharmaceutical were forced to come up with an abuse-proof narcotics. Mm -hmm. The people could not abuse them, mm -hmm. uh, cut it, crush it, and snort it, and whatever. And what happened? Their sales went down 50%, and the sales of heroin tripled, yeah. and yeah. the death rates have been rising since 2010. You know, 15, 20%. And now it's 30, 40% in the last two years, rise from before. We lost more than a million young, healthy Americans. Yeah, I, I saw that in your um, in your beginning or one of the comments on your book. You had mentioned something like mm -hmm. that. So is it is it just naive for me to say, well, I think what we should do then is go back and talk to kids and try to get to the kids before they become addicted. It's almost that prehabituation uh, angle opposed to the rehabituation where we spend so much time and money as a society putting out forest fires with, you know, hands full of thimbles. Maybe we don't let the forest fire even start in the first place, you know? Okay. So in my addiction textbook, it says the pediatrician if they talk to the child after the vaccinations are done, they're five, six, seven years of age, they come for an annual school physical. Mm -hmm. The pediatrician says one or two liner, I do not want you to do smoke cigarettes, weed or mm -hmm. drugs mm -hmm. or anything sexual inappropriate. And next year the kid comes in and repeats the same thing. Promise me that one line works wonders. Mm -hmm. The problem mm -hmm. is that one line is not written in the pediat pediatrician's book, textbook. Mm, yeah. So they are not taught to do this. And they have no reason to buy this textbook of addiction medicine. Right. So getting back to my other point of data 2000, if in year 2000, the federal government mandated the ACGME, the organization that controls the education of the doctors and say, every doctor is going to have some education and addiction. We produce 20,000 new doctors every year. In 20 years, we would have 400,000 new doctors who are fully trained and, and ready to take on. We wouldn't have this crisis. 
So that did not happen. That has not started to happen even today on a larger scale hmm. because we don't have teachers who know enough about addiction medicine. When I started learning addiction medicine in 2006, there were roughly 1,700 doctors that had some knowledge about addiction. In 2011, there were 4,000. And as of now, there are less than 20,000 active providers, which include doctors, nurse practitioners, and physician assistants who have the necessary credentials and actively participate to take care of these people. And that, and because of the limits and regulations, they're only 2.4 million in treatment. So either we need 200,000 providers who are actively engaged to the max or let everybody who has the credentials have 4,000 patients. Right. And take all the regulations and the stress away. So with the computers and every new technology, the stress on the doctors and the burnout is very high. Sure. So doctors don't want to add on more stress and risk. Right. So we've been kind of focusing on, uh, you know, things like, you know, opioids, like Oxycontin and pain management, but where does trauma fit into play? I mean, it seems to me, based on what I've been uh, watching and reading and, and listening to, uh, the fact that a lot of physicians aren't trained in, in patient trauma. And so maybe in pain management uh, and, and that, but where does trauma come into play? If you talk to Dr. Gabor Mate, which I know you know who he is, um, I know he's controversial. He stems, he claims that, again, I, I don't agree with this completely, uh, Dr. Gupta, but he claims that all addiction stems from childhood trauma, um, unresolved childhood trauma. And uh, he is pretty close to normal. I mean, that is very acceptable uh, is uh, explanation, yes. So what happens is uh, whatever the child is facing in the first five years of the life um, is going to determine what kind of personality the person is going to have. And right. it may look like a normal child, but if they're, they're not happy or they are stressed because had a divorce or dysfunctional right. family, or you know, somebody has mental issues, somebody has addiction issues, or they're not happy growing up for various reasons, they may be at risk of, once they are exposed to any chemicals that raise the brain dopamine level, and um, um, so that makes them happy, and then they explode. But it could happen to normal people. <clears throat> right. Uh, then everything was normal, they just had a bad situation with injuries, physical, mental, uh, sexual, whatever. And then the ball starts rolling and they couldn't handle the stress. Is it possible? And I actually was in a LinkedIn conversation the other day because somebody was making some assumptions that uh, and anytime someone says all or most or things like that, I always have red flags coming up because I think most people have uh, opinions based on their lived experience, you know, whatever lens they're viewing from. But if you look at, um, uh, I just look at my situation, you know, I, I became an alcoholic, uh, started drinking at like eighth, ninth grade, and uh, that morphed into gambling. Uh, again, I kind of have a competitive, uh, addictive personality. So, you know, I can certainly relate to having attention deficit that I could be easily lured into these things, but I was never, ever had any traumatic childhood. I mean, I had to leave it the Beaver family. I grew up in a very safe, white, middle-class uh, doctor household. Uh, my mom raised four boys. She was very intelligent. She was number one in her class in college, but she decided to raise four boys instead, put my dad through med school. And um, I don't have any childhood trauma. I, I just, I, I've, I've, um, I haven't had any, any incident in my childhood yet. I became an alcoholic for 32 years. It almost killed me and it ended up taking my, the life of my wife. But so there, my experience is not traumatic. Um, so I guess I would just throw that in there that, that I think maybe statistically most people that develop these addiction issues are, are fleeing from something traumatic. For me, I was bored, Dr. Gupta. I was, I was exploring life. I, I, wanted, I wasn't running from anything. And I just wonder if there's more people out there like, like me that, that became- Oh yeah, there are a lot. Yeah, that became alcoholics that never were traumatized. You know? Yeah, yeah. So, but- uh, 60 to 70 percent people have those kind of experiences okay. that were uh, that kind of pushed them into that direction but it can happen to normal people I mean um, 
I could tell you in my culture, in the Asian Indian culture, uh, we kind of raise uh, kids in a shielded environment. Oh, yeah. And, but there's a lot of love and interaction and everything, so there's no stress in the kid's life. And once they go to the college and university, away from the house, and they mix up with the crowds, and what is happening in the colleges? Right. They buy these big kegs, having parties yep. and yeah. hangover, miss classes, and God knows what happens after that. Yeah. So, yeah. so anybody is at risk of happening it. I mean, yeah, but there is predisposing factors that that create more problems. Yes. So let's let me let me segue a little bit into more of the mind and more of the choices that we make because this is where I certainly don't have you know, you mm -hmm. forgot more in this topic than I'll ever know. But mm -hmm. I came, I came into this mental health industry five years ago, you know, as an angry dad, you know, lost my son, you know, boom, bad choices. And, and then as I got further into it, I realized there's genetic factors involved. Um, there's disease elements involved. Um, again, I'm, I don't really have the knowledge to sit there and debate with someone on these topics, but I know if, like for me, again, as an alcoholic for 32 years, I was able to quit cold Turkey, just and it's been very easy for me not to drink. So when I talk to people that are struggling daily with their alcoholism, I have, I've had a difficult time understanding that because I haven't. Um, again, I'm seeing things from my lens. Uh, but let me ask you about the mind. About, are, are, we, are we utilizing the capabilities of our mind to fight these things, these addictions, these compulsions, these poor choices? Um, and are we too dependent on, on drugs, um, pharmaceutical uh, drugs? Yeah, so um, the industry and, and the the public has a desire to have instant results, Absolutely. gratification. Yep. So you got a headache, you got to take a pill. You got this thing, got a cold, you don't want to take uh, soup and then drink more fluids and rest, And but you want some medication. So everything has a pill possibly, and, and so that's what the system promotes and the pharma industry has promoted. What you were able to do is not easy. Less than 3% of the people can do that, mm -hmm. that say, I am done. I'm not going to be on the phone and playing games. Or I'm not going to smoke. Or I'm not going to drink. It's a very rare thing that people can raise their mindset and say, I am done. We have people who are, have smokers for life, have lung cancer, can't breathe. <laughs> I have to smoke. Right. You know, right. so majority, vast majority of the people would not be able to do what you did. You just psych yourself up. That means you're fairly intelligent and say enough is enough. I'm not going to do this anymore. I don't have any at home. I'm not going to go and right. go about right. and drink and right. socialize right. with friends about doing that. OK, so uh, but that is very rare and very commendable what you were able to do. And it is ironic you said that because I do go to bars. I do go to parties. Um I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to hide from alcohol. I just know for Jeff Johnston today, it doesn't work. And again, I've trying to get a lot of people that are in my, my circle to kind of change the narrative on how we approach this. And for me, I don't even call myself sober, Dr. Gupta, because that implies I'm in a struggle and I just choose not to drink. I, I, I try not to overthink this. Um, now tomorrow I have to live the tomorrow. I gotta, I gotta get there first and then I'll make a choice. I, I may drink tomorrow. Um, but I've gone on five years now and it's been easy now to, to segue from that, but let me get back to the mind thing again, because I think, I think, um, this is really a, 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 there's kind of a resurgence or a renaissance in this area, uh, especially with plant-based medicine versus pharmaceutically, you know, made medicine or medicine. But what's your thoughts on, on this new trend of plant-based medicine. We see a lot of shows, a lot of comments. There's a lot of money. I'm on the investment sides. I'm my, my career was building up an investment firm here in Iowa. So I understand, uh, follow the money, uh, when it goes into new industries. And I see a lot, I mean, billions of dollars going into uh, psychedelic research, um, you know, kind of digging up the old, uh, uh, files and data that, that, um, you know, like Dr. Timothy Leary had back in the seventies at, at Harvard that just for the war on drugs just got pushed away. Just, we're not going to look at this data. Now it's kind of being re-looked at. I have never done psychedelics in my entire life. Uh, never done drugs actually. So I'm not coming in from a biased perspective. I'm coming in from a learning perspective. So you're talking about psychedelics, not marijuana. Are you talking about? Correct. Correct. Yeah. Marijuana, I think 
and maybe maybe you would agree with this. I, I kind of put that in a whole different box um, okay. because that that is addictive, correct? Where psychedelics are looked at as not addictive. Okay, so uh, let me make two comments about the marijuana, and then we'll talk about the psychedelics. Yeah. Yep. But what I know. So I, when I started learning addictions more than 16 years ago, the marijuana was about 4% potent hmm. and was relatively mild. With genetically engineering, it's upwards of 20, 30% potent. And even in some cases, they can get it 60, 70% potent. So people who are now 50 years of age have been doing for 30, 40 years. They're telling me, doc, this is a totally different animal. Hmm. And it's, we can't even do one joint at one time. Wow. And so it's become more dangerous. The younger the age you started, the more destruction to the brain it's going to create. And that has been proven by ad studies and advanced, advanced PET scans. Hmm. The psychedelics basically dissociate the brain from the frontal cortex and the thalamus. The front of the brain is fear and anxiety and the thalamus is common sense. You're standing on an edge of a stage and, and you feel like you're going to fall and you step back. So that's the fear. The, the back post brain says, you don't want to be standing there anymore. Step one back. So the psychedelics basically dissociate the front and the back and, and create a schizophrenic effect, if you may. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So they're out of reality, don't know what's happening. Uh, Eventually, they're going to have a fried up brain. Don't get me wrong. So uh, there is uh, nothing that is pure that doesn't affect. Even the water we drink and the air we breathe right. is not pure. I think in, in what I have been reading and watching, because again, as an advocate for mental health, for improving people's lives, if we just continue to do what we're doing and expect things to change, that's insanity. So, I mean, we have to look at alternatives or, or we're just going to have these numbers keep going up. So the psychedelic, I've kind of kept an eye on. But to me, it seems like the difference is, and this is maybe where um, you can help me understand this a little better, where maybe the, the mainstream medical profession would be against psychedelics, is that, you know, psychedelics, from what I understand, it aren't something that you take very often. I mean, you basically may take them one time in your life, maybe two or three times in your lifetime, because the experience is so uh, monumental to the to the to the human being that there is not a need to continue taking it because it's, it's they're not getting high. Um, and again, you can correct me on this because I have no background in this area. Uh, I'm just coming from my edu my reading and my watching. Um, and, and maybe with, say, um, you know, Adderall or something that's prescribed, you literally have to take that every day. So my understanding is from what I, again, maybe the people I watch are a little more biased, but it's like there, there wouldn't be an endorsement from the medical profession because um, if you're only taking psychedelics a few times a year, then where, where is the money to be made in anything that's, that's uh, only something taken a few times. So uh, if I, am I wrong with looking at that way or. So, so, let, so let's look at this way. If I don't have a headache, I may not be looking for a Tylenol. Right, right. Or an Advil. Okay. Right. So why would anybody want to look at an, a psychedelic drug if they don't have any issues? So a lot of these people who may be wanting to get into the spaces, they have either underdiagnosed or misdiagnosed or overly treated or underly treated mental disorders. Right. So they're right. not in a comfortable space. Uh, healthy environment. Right. And so they're going to go either smoke a cigarette or marijuana or have a glass of wine or somebody may introduce them to the psychedelics. The way the science works is they you have to do a double brine studies and Correct. say one person got it, the other person didn't got it and see what the effects are. Mm -hmm. That has not been studied even for marijuana. And we have 33 states that have legalized or decriminalized marijuana and is a class one drug. Hmm. I'm sure the psychedelics are class one drug too. Fentanyl is class one drug, you know, and it's killing people. And so what I say on my talks and social media is that let's strengthen the laws against fentanyl uh, as a class one drug and declare it as a weapon of mass destruction. Once the laws are strengthened, 
then we have more things that we can do to prevent from happening. Yeah, I fully agree. I fully agree with the fentanyl perspective because there is no, uh, I mean, fentanyl is, is so highly addictive and in, in such, such a small amount can kill you. Whereas, you know, marijuana, you could smoke quite a bit of marijuana and probably not die. I mean, how many people die from marijuana overdose? Um, only if it's laced with fentanyl. Um, yeah. and so, yeah, I think, I think, I think there is a movement for this weapon of mass destruction mindset. I know, for example, Dr. Gupta, I don't say Seth died from an overdose. I say he was poisoned most of the time. Um, and, and he was, he was, he was murdered at the hands of somebody I don't know, but he didn't take heroin to die. You know, it, it's, it, it, he didn't, um, he didn't, he didn't want to die that day. Um, yeah, but, and, and, but even for heroin, I mean, if all the 41 million people are in treatment, then we don't need all these harm reduction policies, clean needles, provide them heroin, provide them Narcan. You know what the younger people are doing? They have a Narcan in the hand and then they go to take for a, a, a shot of heroin or fentanyl and see if they're going to die or not. That's what the younger people are doing. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't dispute that that's, that could possibly happen. Um, I know the harm reductionist angle is save a life. You can't, you can't rehab somebody who's dead. And from one moment that their life is saved, then we worry about everything else. Um, and, uh, you know, again, my lens is a little bit different just because I have lost a child and I would give anything to have the one day to be able to talk to him about poor choices. Um, but I don't, but there is somebody out there that, today their life was saved through Narcan. And I, I understand completely what you're saying. I'm sure people look at the safety. So, so I, I'm, no, I'm, I'm fully with it. What you're saying is let's save these young people today, but we can't be saving them day after day after day right. and not be right. in treatment. Right. So if you tell me that by providing Narcan and heroin for next six months so that everybody is safe and alive, but January 1st, we're going to have everybody in medication-assisted treatment. Then that's perfectly fine. Yeah. But if yeah. you just keep on expanding these harm reduction policies, right. county by county, there are $10,000 machines dispensing Narcan, and you got to, anybody could go and get it. And it's still not saving lives. Because yeah. where right. that free Narcan is going is probably getting sold and buy more heroin. It's just certainly a slippery slope. It's it's just as naive as saying, well, let's just shut the borders and, and fentanyl will stop coming across the borders from Mexico and everyone will live. That's a very naive so, statement as well. Yeah. So uh, early winter of, uh, you know, um, towards December of 2021, there was a study came out of Vancouver that showed that this harm reduction policies and providing needles and heroin uh, did not work because the death rates increased, the incidence of hepatitis C and HIV increased, and, and more people are addicted. And and three months ago, a study came out of Portland. They said the same thing. Yeah, Portland's a mess. I, yep, I get that. Yep. Um, okay. So we got to be able to look at it and, and, and say what makes sense. Now, there's a new bill on the uh, floor of, uh, in, in Washington called MATE Act. And I'm going to speak about it in the evening, my views about it. And, 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 and there are four little things. Create a timeline for non-reputative requirements so that doctors can get a license to do it. Mm -hmm. and, and then have some medical schools allow programs in the residencies to do it. And then normalize addiction education across the professional schools. And authorize federal government to provide grants. But mm -hmm. if all the laws that are there persist as of today, doctors are not going to get into the stuff. You would be surprised to know that 125,000 doctors, NPs, and PAs do have the necessary credentials to treat people with addiction, but only 18,000 are partially engaged. My son is a board-certified addiction doctor. He's got zero patients. Okay, it's so, so difficult. Is it because? Of, yeah, let's let's take that for a second and just give me the layperson's reason of why. Uh, is it yeah. because of the red tape? Is it just too much, uh, too many hoops he has to jump through, or what everything? Is 
Okay. Everything. I mean, so, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, there is no incentive. There's too much disincentive. I've been addiction medicine. He hears from me. He still did the exam uh, and, and says, okay, in case I have to, I, I'm ready, you know, but um, doesn't have patience. He does his own work. And um, so uh, there are a lot of providers that have the necessary credentials, but they're not actively participating. So if one of the ways that we can get this epidemic eradicated is to have more treatment, how do we do that? Well, we start from a few things. We have to start at the medical school. So the coming generations are not facing this crisis. Every four years or every year, there are new 20,000 doctors that have the necessary credentials. Then all the existing medical professionals doctors, nurses, pharmacists, you name anybody. And I've been saying that for more than a decade. Should have a mandatory eight-hour CME before they renew the license, um, which would be next year, two or three, state or federal. They have to do this course. And, and, and they'll force everybody with, hey, we've we got to learn this or we not have a license. And then they need to have education and proper vocabulary, empathy, and humanity, which yeah. is not taught to the doctors. They're not taught to the medical professionals. Right. So until yeah. we do that basic stuff, the rest is all talk. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And as an advocate, that's what's frustrating because it seems like I call this a big game of whack-a-mole. You know, the game where the mole sticks his head out and you hit it and then another hole comes up and the head comes and you at the carnival and you try to hit all the moles. Yeah. That's how we're dealing with this issue with, and I'll just say mental health umbrella. You know, it's it's just a large game of whack-a-mole. You know, it's, it's fentanyl here. It's uh, alcohol here. It's depression here. It's suicidal ideation here. It's anxiety here. It's social media here. It's like, it's like how do we as a society start to tie all this together so specifically adolescents can have some feeling of hope and inspiration instead of just living their life like a big game of frogger where every day they're dodging logs and cars and uh, on the road and they're just trying to survive i mean how can we make the playing field a little more uh, less mind minds on the playing field you know well i mean uh, it, it never occurred to me. My, I have three kids, and I'm very fortunate, and they're all doctors, and they're alive, no addiction issues. And we never questioned them. They wanted to go in high school and spend some time with the kids. If I had to do it all over again, I would not leave that room with the kids because we do not know what they're going to do. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I never interfered with my kids. My son wrote me in high school, Dad, you, I'm thankful you were there for me when I needed you. You were still there for me just in case, in a good way, uh, and even if I didn't need you. They knew we were standby. We were available 24-7. It didn't matter. You know, so a lot of parents are busy, they're stressed, mm -hmm. and don't have the time, and don't have the knowledge. And I was in New York with visiting my son and my my uh, grandkids and their other grandparents, and that's what we're talking about. How can we protect our grandchildren now? Is it true that Adderall's prescribed more to adults than children today? Uh, I didn't understand your question. I heard a statistic that oh, Adderall, Adderall, the medicine, is prescribed to adults more than children today. Yeah, because the Adults were children at some point in time, mm -hmm. and at 30, 40 years ago, they had uh, issues with attention deficit disorder, and then they got adults and got lost into the shuffle, and now they're coming up being, getting fired every three months from the job because they can't keep up the job, and so they go through this stuff, and uh, I don't treat kids, and so I, and I don't write much Adderall, but I would imagine those people who are getting at younger age, for them to be functional, uh, they have to have, yes. And again, my lens, I have attention deficit. My dad's a doctor. My dad was a practicing physician for 35 years, University of Iowa. He was the team doctor for the Iowa basketball team. So I grew up in a doctor household. And my dad mm -hmm. told me at five years old that my attention deficit was a superpower. He said, little Jeffy, 
you got a superpower and, and use it to your best abilities. And so I grew up feeling sorry for the kids that weren't hyper. And uh, I never made honor roll in high school. Um, I ended up, I ended up building up a investment firm with nine full-time employees. And we had a $700 million asset under management at one point. So I did quite well professionally, but my dad harnessed my attention deficit. He didn't tell me it was a disorder. He didn't tell me to take Stratera or at, or Ritalin. Um, he very easily could have as a doctor. Um, and he, he leaned into my attention deficit and basically brainwashed me that it was something that I was lucky to have that he he told me, Dr. Gupta, you, you can't put it in kids. You can only take it out of them. And he said that to me, <laughs> he said that, right. And I was a young kid. I'm thinking, well, shit, I'm born with this superpower. So I go into school, you know, I'm not getting great grades. I was an athlete, you know, I was competitive and, uh, but I felt really lucky now today. The doctor told my son, Seth, take this pill or you're going to be a werewolf at midnight and you're going to eat all your friends because it's a disorder. Yeah. And Seth so, really believed that he believed. Yeah. And I didn't. And if I have to take one thing to my grave, I didn't intervene and said, screw that. It's not a disorder. This is a superpower like my daddy told me. And you need to learn to lean into it. But we don't do that because you said and I, I really like what you said. We have a fast paced society today. Parents are too busy on mm -hmm. social media, on making money, on traveling and, and whatever they're doing, that they just rather, hey, doctor, tell me what's wrong with my kids so I can give them a pill so they're fixed. And I think Dr. Gabor Mate said something on the uh, Rich Roll podcast the other day that I really liked. He said, and I wrote this down, that we think that um, addiction is this thing out there on its own. That, that is looking at us, that, that it attaches to us like a demon. He says addiction's a process. It's part of us. It isn't something disassociated from us. And the first time I've ever heard it presented that way, because I always think of addiction as something like in a bottle where you drink it and all of a sudden now you're addicted. And I think if we can kind of start maybe reframing how we look at the definition of these things, maybe we can start digging ourselves out of this hole that we have as society has, have created and, and we're really hurting our kids, I think, by labeling them like this. And so in yeah, my from, bubble, in my bubble, I don't use the word disorder at all for any of this stuff. Yeah. So I, and now I remember when my kids were younger in uh, preschool and middle school and stuff, I never missed a parent-teacher conference and they were always on the top of the class. And what happened is the teacher would give them whole work to do in the class. So my kids would finish the work, 45-minute uh, work in 15 minutes. And then they're trying to talk to other people. What, what should they do? So the teacher will call, will say, when the parent teacher comes, your kid is destructive. I mean, <laughs> not letting other kids do the homework. I said, oh, the problem funny. is they can do the work in a shorter period of time, give them more work. Right. And, and then they're busy. Perfect. But then it's like, who's going to check that much work? I said, that's not my headache, but you're not going to label my kid a hyperactive because that is not true. Right. So I didn't let the school dictate. And, and like I said, they're all doctors. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, this labeling is bad. And I even at some point used to think maybe parents get extra money from the insurance of the government for that label. I don't know if that is true or not. You know, probably not. But, uh, you know, in my book, uh, I, in my book, I make a quote or I, a statistic I found that I, I do this at all my presentations. And I think when I first met you, I may have quoted this. Uh, that in 1990, there were 600,000 kids on prescription stimulants in 1990. Uh, 21 years later, 2011, it was 3.7 million kids were on prescription stimulants. Now, I beg the question, in two decades, do kids change that much that we need to give them from 600,000 to 3.7 million prescription stimulants? Or does the diagnosis change? is that's what's changing. And there's no question it's the latter because kids aren't any different in two decades. And so, you know, at least maybe in a hundred years, they're different, but not, not from the seventies to the nineties. They're not that big a difference. Um, well, so we have too much screen time for the kids. Yeah, the little kids that. are being exposed to the screen. Right. I mean, my grandkids, uh, five, six, seven, and eight, they hardly have any screen time. That's good. Okay. So, they, they, they're busy doing hands-on stuff, going places, doing things, you know. Uh, so that's that's what we have to do. Yeah. But it takes a lot of time and resources uh, for the parents to do that. 
Well, we have a battle in front of us, Dr. Gupta, and you know, you and I are, and, and many others are pushing this boulder up this hill, and we have people on the other end pushing it back at us. You know, the drug dealers, the people that are, you know, um, uh, you know, causing a lot of the the resistance. And uh, we ask, and I ask all the people that follow me, and I'm sure the people that read your book and follow you, we need more help pushing this boulder up the hill, and uh, we need to figure out easy replicable processes especially for adolescents that they can on a daily basis uh be reminded how important they are how special they are uh, give them some encouragement so they can develop because there is certainly an illusion of autonomy from dependence and kids think they're autonomous but they're dependent and so one thing we're doing at living undeterred and i'd love to get your thoughts on this uh off the air here but is developing some platforms where uh, we're going to be um, providing some mental health planning for adolescents, but have it come from adolescents, not from me, not from you, not from police officers, not from teachers, but have this backed evidence-wise by experts like you and other people and, and people that are passionate for lived experiences like me, but have it social-proofed, have it coming from adolescents to adolescents. I think that's the thing we're kind of missing because everything's driven by parents to kids or adults to kids. And most kids evidence shows are going to listen to their peer group more than their parents or their oh, yeah. doctors. That is always true. So right. in, in the, in the rotary action group, addiction prevention, we have a smart program Yeah, and S stands for school education and, and they have a great model and it is effective. Like I said, the pediatricians have to be taught that one line that, that I mentioned before, that they can need to talk to the adolescents and younger people, and then peer-to-peer. -peer, but how do we champion the adolescents and then that, hey, talk to your peers about this thing. So if I have to be first convinced to convince you of something, mm -hmm. so... Uh, a 10, 11 year old, why would that, why would he or she have that knowledge to go out and be a spokesperson for a group of other people? That We're working is on key. that. We're working, yeah, working on, that. on that. And I'm, I'm fairly certain we have answers. Uh, I can't really divulge too much because I just incorporated the Living Undeterred brand and we're working on building this product. But um, I think that if we use the mindset, you don't know what you don't know. Are you curious to improve your life and get them to buy into this? Not me go talk to their mom and dad at some school conference and say, I've got mm -hmm. this great, I've got this great uh, platform that your kids, once they get into it, their mental health will get better. So you go home, Dr. Gupta at the dinner table and you say, kids, guess what? I've got this online mental health app that'll fix your life. You know what they're going to say? I got no desire to do something like that. But yeah. if their peer group, says this worked for me and this is easy to implement it's like anything that you do in life it's going to take initially some work to get it set up but it's personalized it's an it's a mental health planning service personalized for adolescents i think if we come in from the back door instead of the front door and the front yeah. door would be the front door would be adults teachers you know um you know all, all the authority figures all the that, other people yeah right and if we come in from yeah. the back door and social yeah. proof it. I think, yeah. I really think that this can be an effective tool, not, not replacing things like therapy and medicine, things like that, but a tool. Uh, it, it will prevent the next generation of disaster. There you go. I think, yeah, I, I just, I, I don't know if I have energy in me to go out and stop a 40 year old housewife from having two bottles of Pinot Grigio. Um, mm -hmm. I've tried that. I failed. Um, I'm just not sure that's where I want to spend the rest of my life. I want to change the lives of kids and I want to give them hope and inspiration and not scare them, not say, well, if you do yeah. this, you're going to go to jail. If you do this, you're going to die and give them something to look forward to in the morning. Because right now our kids in this, in the United States, they have, they have no hope. Uh, most of them are just not in a really good place. And ironically, they have more abundance than they've ever had in the history of humanity, but they're not mm -hmm. happy. They're not, they're, they're yeah. missing something. Most kids. Yeah, they are. Yeah. But, um, okay. How do people reach you and how do people get your book? 
my book uh, could be bought from Amazon and it, they can go to a bookstore and request to order it. Uh, most bookstores are not storing it in the store because it requires me to say that I could, uh, I will have to pay for shipping back if it's not sold. So it's right. not on right. the shelves, which becomes very expensive. Uh, and uh, the proceeds of the book are going into a foundation called Resolve America's Opiate Epidemic Foundation. So I'm not taking the proceeds uh, for my benefit. And I'm just giving back to the society by sharing my concerns and thoughts. Um, how they can reach me, I'm in Monroe, Michigan. Uh, LinkedIn is a good way to reach me. Uh, I have, I'm have i not very good in the sh other social spaces, <laughs> uh, but through the book, through the website, thepreventableepidemicbook.com, or you can go to raoefoundation.com. Uh, we're also starting in the process of starting uh, Sensible Opiate Solutions, SOS.com also, but it is still paperwork has to be filed. And um, um, I, I would need help and support because right now I'm doing everything out of my pocket and I know I'm going to get burnt out. And, I am too. Uh, I am too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so, I listen, uh, I'm happy our paths cross and I'm really, really excited that we can work together with Rotary. Uh, you know, I was asked by, uh, by Rotary to... to um, to be an advocate, uh, to be a spokesperson, uh, to bring you know a different uh, perspective to these this issue, I am just so in awe of Rotary's uh, desire um, to eradicate this epidemic, uh, this preventable epidemic. Epidemic, yeah. So we have a meetings coming up in Iowa. Larry is coming, and I'm coming too. Oh, so I'll great. physically meet you, and uh, we may. Split the presentations. You're local. You can do it whenever you want. But maybe people need to hear what I have to say. So we'll see how it goes. And uh, so I told, once he met you, he said that you two were doing it. But before he met you, he and I was doing it. So, uh, we'll so my daughter is there. <laughs> yeah, my daughter is there. So I have another incentive to come and see her. So, well, Cedar Rapids has a great advocacy network here, and. Um, I know one dad in town here that lost both his sons to, uh, to fentanyl. So, um, it's something close to my heart and uh, I'm really excited to continue collaborating with you. And, uh, thank you very much for being on the living Undeterred podcast. And, uh, again, I really look forward to, um, putting our heads together and trying to make a dent in this issue. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me and spending the hour with me. So thank you. Take care. We'll talk soon.